0: Will set you free. Headline Edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Force has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. They was too fast to be an airplane. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of The Veritas Show. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and as usual, I sincerely thank you for tuning in. Tonight's special guest is the father of modern-day ufology, Stanton Friedman. We'll be going to the interview rather quickly since we have received so many of your questions and we don't want to leave any stone unturned. A couple of announcements. If you need to get in touch with me, with questions or comments, I try to answer every one of them, and all of you who have written know I do. Send them to mail, that's M-E-L, at veritashow.com. We now have 83 countries that have listened to our show. I would like to welcome four new countries, Anguilla, Algeria, Barbados, and Venezuela. We keep circling the world, and you can help us even more by just sending an email to one person you know with a link to our show. Also, let me remind you of the very Veritas video contest. If you're not on the website, head to it and click on show info and video. You'll see the instructions and your help will make us grow even more. We are honored to announce next week's special guest, the sixth man to walk on the moon, Dr. Edgar Mitchell. You may want to start submitting your questions for Dr. Mitchell now. And now some UFO news. News coming from Dr. Michael Sala's publication, The Honolulu ExoPolitics Examiner. And by the way, Dr. Sala will be our special guest on Friday, February the 6th. The headline reads, UFO files to be released under Obama open government memoranda. Obama said, quote, for a long time now, there's been too much secrecy in this city. The old rules said that if there was a defensible argument for not disclosing something to the American people, then it should not be disclosed. That era is now over, starting today. Every agency and department should know that this administration stands on the side, not of those who seek to withhold information, but those who seek to make it known." In the case of classified X-files dealing with evidence of UFOs and extraterrestrial life, Obama's memoranda will make it easier for the release of such files in cases where national security is not compromised The consequences of the release of ex-files of different government agencies and military departments will be momentous If they confirm that extraterrestrial life is visiting Earth Let's take a short break and we'll be right back with tonight's special guest Stanton Friedman If you want to know the latest from the father of modern day ufology Don't go anywhere. Most of the great music you hear right here on The Veritas Show is supplied by the independent artists from GarageBand.com. If you hear a song you like, go over to the GarageBand.com website, look it up, and download it. You can even buy the group CDs in many cases right there at GarageBand.com. Stanton T. Friedman received bachelor's and master's degrees in physics from the University of Chicago in 1955 and 1956, where Carl Sagan was a classmate. He worked for 14 years as a nuclear physicist for General Electric, General Motors, Westinghouse, TRW, Aerojet General Nucleonics, and McDonnell Douglas. On such advanced, highly classified, eventually canceled projects as nuclear aircraft, fission and fusion rockets, and nuclear power plants for space. Since 1967, he has lectured on the topic of UFOs at more than 600 colleges and over 100 professional groups in North America, including the United States, Canada, and Mexico, Europe, South America, the Middle East, Asia, and Australia. Often referred to as the father of Roswell, he was the first to investigate the incident beginning in 1978. He has been investigating UFO incidents since the mid-1950s. With us tonight, known to many these days as the father of modern-day ufology, (laughs) Stanton Friedman. Hello, Stan, and welcome to The Veritas Show. How are you?
1: Oh, I'm good, in beautiful downtown Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada, where it's cold and there's a lot of snow on the ground.
0: (laughs) I bet it's cold there. Stan, in all the years I have listened to you, I did not know Carl Sagan, rest in peace, was your classmate. One of my favorite quotes is displayed on our website. I don't want to believe, I want to know. You've been doing this for a very long time. We have a different platform on this show, and having such a high-profile guest, it's sometimes difficult to formulate questions that haven't been asked before. My pledge to the audience is that this show is about questions the audience wants to ask, but was never able to. That said, a large portion of the questions we'll have for you tonight come directly from our listeners around the world. And I must say, they are very good questions. Naturally, let's start with the case that started it all in the public's mind. July 1947, Roswell, which you thoroughly describe in your book, Crash at Corona. Fast forward from 1947 to 1978, is this how it all started for you? And how did you get involved as the first civilian investigating this case?
1: Well, it certainly isn't how my interest in UFOs got started. I I read the first book, uh, Edward Ruppelt's book, uh, uh, about the report on unidentified flying objects, uh, way back in 1958. As a young nuclear physicist working for General Electric in Cincinnati ordering completely by accident almost. Uh I needed one more book so I wouldn't have to pay shipping on a bunch of books I was ordering from a discount place in New York. I was working in Cincinnati. And uh there was the report on UFOs by rupelt and it was marked down from a hardcover book, mind you, from two ninety five to a dollar. <laughs> and uh that's what shipping would have been if I hadn't bought the book. So what the heck? It wasn't gonna cost me anything. Now I had some other thoughts at the time. I, I had read a lot of science fiction when I was, oh, ten 10 or 12 years old. I had a friend who had a basement full of the old pulp magazines. And uh, I read them for a couple of years, so to speak, and then I got into the real world more. But uh, I figured that the Air Force was co-sponsor on the Aircraft Nuclear Propulsion Program. It was a big program. We spent $100 million that year, GE did, which was a lot of money in 1958. Sure, might imagine. Uh, to some people, I guess it's a lot of money now. <laughs>
0: but, of course. Uh,
1: uh, we employed 3,500 people, 1,100 of them engineers and scientists like myself. Uh, anyway, and, and I thought, okay, the Air Force are good guys. Uh, the uh, I, I didn't have any opinions about UFOs, but I thought if these things were real and they used nuclear power, hey, that would help the program. And finally, uh, what the heck if worst comes to worst, It'd be worth a laugh. you know I read all kinds of stuff. I read the book. It didn't convince me, but it intrigued the heck out of me, and I shared it with the neighbor. Charlie was 10 years older than I was, and he was more impressed than I was, which impressed me. I moved off to California. One of my many programs that eventually got canceled was the ANP program. I, I specialized in canceled government sponsored research and development programs. Not intentionally, you understand. But uh, And I read 15 more books in California, some of which were junk, and if I'd read them first, I probably would never have read another. And then I made a. Uh, I had my epiphany, so to speak. I discovered. At the University of California, Berkeley Library, the report on unidentified—well, it wasn't—that was revealed earlier. But the Re- Project Blue Book special report number 14, the biggest study ever done for the United States government, and it hadn't been mentioned in any of these 15 books that I had read. And it was chock full of data. And I'm a data hound. 240 charts, tables, graphs, and maps. What was most shocking, however. And this really kind of set me on my ear a little bit, was to find that the guy had put out this privately published version, Dr. Leon Davidson, who used to work at uh, Los Alamos, had included the press release that the Air Force issued. They didn't distribute the report, but they issued the press release in October 1955. And they said, quote, because this set the whole tone of Air Force coverage for the next umpteen years, They said, on the basis of this report, now this is the Secretary of the Air Force talking to my Donald Quarles, on the basis of this report, we believe that no objects such as those properly described as flying saucers have overflown the United States. Even the unknown 3% could have been identified as conventional phenomena or illusions if more complete observational data had been available. Unquote it sounds pretty straightforward. There's nothing to this. I mean, the only trouble is when you look at the data, which I did, uh, it turns out the unknowns weren't 3%. They were 21.5%. And it turns out they weren't the cases for which there wasn't enough information because there was a whole separate category. 9.3% were insufficient information. And in addition, as if that wasn't enough, They did a quality evaluation of all the sightings, 3,201 cases they looked at. So this wasn't, you know, just a couple of guys spending a few weeks. And uh, they found that the better the quality of the sighting, the more likely
0: to be unexplainable. Isn't that interesting?
1: Yeah. And they furthermore, they asked the obvious question. Well, okay, is there really any difference between the unknowns, the only ones we're interested in really, and the knowns? And so they did what is called a chi square statistical analysis. Basically, they looked at six different characteristics apparent size, color, shape, speed, that sort of thing. And they compared the unknowns with the knowns. And amazing, they found that the probability that the unknowns were just misknowns was less than 1%. Does that prove they're alien really spacecraft? No, of course not. But it sure says they aren't just cases for which there wasn't enough data. So that report shook me up. Look, I was working under security, and i 'm accustomed to well sort of sometimes you had to sort of tap dance around the truth if you will you don 't want to lie to people, but sometimes you have to uh, avoid telling the whole truth or something but sure. here we have a blatant lie by the Secretary of the Air Force, and the lie's been repeated many, many times, uh, not only by Air Force people but by well cross and uh, Carl said twice, once in print and once uh, to a reporter well, I wound up in print too for in Toronto, that there are interesting sightings that aren't reliable which is true. There are reliable sightings that aren't interesting which is also true, but there are no interesting and reliable sightings, which is totally false. Of course, he didn't give any basis for it for that statement. The data's there in Blue Book Special Report 14, and It's one of five large-scale scientific studies that I normally discuss at the beginning of my lecture, Flying Saucers Are Real, and I talk about them in depth in the first chapter of my new book, Flying Saucers and Science. Uh, The point is you better look at the data first before reaching a conclusion. And the myth, and I heard it on television programs uh, and radio programs that I've been on, The myth is that, oh, well, there's a residue. You always get a residue when you look at the unknown, but it doesn't mean anything. Uh, And that's malarkey. 21.5% is not a residue. Uh, Fewer than 1% of the naturally occurring isotopes are fissionable. Does that mean none are? Of course it doesn't. Fewer than 1% of the people are 7 feet tall. The basketball coach says, hey, uh, give me one. I don't care about the bulk or the majority or whatever. One good guy is enough. So the mythology has gone on uh, forever, if you will. Anyway, that was about 1960, 61. I gave my first lecture in 1967. Uh, That's 11 years before Roswell, before I heard about Roswell. Actually, I'd heard about it in the early 70s. A woman told me that she worked at a radio station in uh, Albuquerque and that their Roswell affiliate had called saying that uh, a crash saucer had been recovered. It was being shipped to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And then there was a bell ringing on the line. She was putting it out on the wire and it said, do not continue this transmission, FBI. Hmm. I talked to her, but I'd gotten to her because her son had had a sighting, and uh, two of us, uh, Bobby and Slate Geronda, and I, were talking to the son, and he said, You really ought to talk to mom. She had a great sighting back in Albuquerque. So we talked to mom and uh, Lydia, and uh, she told us about her sighting, and then got on to this case, uh, Roswell. Well, I followed up on it as far as I could go and ran out of steam. There just didn't, people didn't remember or had died or whatever. But it was in 1978. Now, remember, I'd already been lecturing for 11 years to all kinds of places. There's more than 700 now. But, uh, and I was at uh, a television station in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, to promote my lecture that night at Louisiana State University. I was supposed to do three interviews. And I did. the uh, station manager knew the person from LSU who brought me to the station, so he was being accommodating and stuff. I did the first two, and then the third reporter was nowhere to be found and didn't have cell phones back then. (laughs) So, you know, he's apologizing. He's looking at his watch. He knows I have other places to go and things to do, and uh, he's embarrassed. Finally, he says, uh, out of the blue. I mean, it had nothing to do with anything we were talking about. It was just him and me. And he says, you know, the guy you ought to talk to is Jesse Marcel. Mm
0: -hmm. Now,
1: brilliant investigator that I am. I said, who's he? (laughs) 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 He said, oh, well, he handled wreckage from one of those saucers you're interested in when he was in the military. Well, And I picked up my teeth from the floor. Tell me more. Well, he lives over in Houma, Louisiana. I didn't know where that was. I've been there since (laughs) to interview Jesse, as a matter of fact who's dead now, of course, but still. Right. Uh, and uh, uh, he said, you really ought to talk to him. He's a great guy. We're old ham radio buddies. That's how they knew each other. And it turned out the the station manager, Johnny Allen, had read about Jesse in the, uh, on the Orleans the fancy-named newspaper they have. Um, and later, when they were ham radio buddies, uh, he asked him about it, and Jesse said, I can't tell you anything. But, I called, we had a great response that night, so I was figuring, oh, what the heck, people are really good here. Uh, The next morning from the airport, mind you, just out of curiosity, I called information, got a number for Jesse, called him, yeah, and I used the name of the uh, station manager, so, you know, I wasn't coming at him cold. Now, he could not deny that he'd been involved in this, because his picture was in newspapers all over the place. Front page.
0: What? Front page.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, so he's not one of people say, why did these people talk to you? I said, well, most of the people I talked to first time around, I mean, like Colonel uh, a Retired General, when I talked to him, uh, DuBose, his picture was all over the place. These people couldn't say they didn't have anything to do with that. But Jesse told me a story. He didn't have a precise date. And I knew that uh, 47 was a big day, you know, big month, year, uh, Kenneth Arnold's sighting in June and so forth. So you sort of filed it, and I, uh, a few months later, was in Bemidji, Minnesota, Bemidji State College, and uh, somebody there, after my lecture, asked me if I had ever heard about a crash saucer in New Mexico, and I said, well, yes, and uh, Tommy Moores, and I got their name and address. This was really the Barney Barnett story over in the plains of San Augustine, but I shared that with Bill Moore as I had the Jesse Marcel story, and he had a third story, and that was really the impetus that gave us something to work with. Uh, we heard the story, it was in Flying Saucer Review, an English publication, about an English actor, Huey Green, who, this was in a 1950-something article, driving across New Mexico, had heard on the radio about a crash saucer. He was heading toward Philadelphia from L.A., and thought for sure there'd be a big fuss when he got to Philadelphia, no fuss. But he could remember the date, early July 1947, because it wasn't a trip you made very often back then. You can imagine what the (laughs) roads were like. Sure. And uh, early 47 July. So Bill Moore went to the University of Minnesota Library, periodicals department started looking, there was the story. Gave us names besides uh, Jesse's <laughs> name, Walter Hott's name, the public information officer, Colonel Blanchard. had had uh, General Ramey and Colonel DuBose. And, you know, there was an awful lot. So in the next year and a half, we found, Bill and I, 62 people connected with the case. And we verified what Jesse had told us and what uh, the gal from uh, Albuquerque had told us. And, you know, this was before the Internet. Some of your listeners may not remember that there was a time before the Internet. But it was that wasn't harder. too long ago. No, it was a lot harder to find uh, people and uh, telephone information. You spent a lot of money on phone calls. And uh, The first book came out in 1980, The Roswell Incident. By 1986, Bill and I had talked to, we had located 92 people And I instigated the Unsolved Mysteries program in 1989, which brought us a number more witnesses. And believe it or not, this before cable uh, was seen by 28 million people and 30 million when it was rerun a few months later. And so, you know, it was a long period of hard work. These people didn't come running to me, as some people have suggested. You know, why would those guys run to Friedman? They didn't. I had to go find them. And it was expensive. Bill and I were each spending hundreds of dollars a month on phone calls. You know, you'd start with a guy and get his wife to check their Christmas list. And, hey, any of those guys we were with down in Roswell still around, you know, and stuff like that. So it, it it's not surprising that the, Bill and another colleague of ours, uh, Jamie Chandra, got the original film with the MJ-12 documents on it in 1984. Uh, my book, Top Secret Magic, goes into all the data on that. That's M A J I C for those who wonder. Uh, everything about my books, incidentally, is on my website at www.stantonfriedman.com, uh, and you can use PayPal or send a check or whatever you want. But then there's some articles that are free, like Government UFO Lies. I like that one because everybody was lying. <laughs> Also, the UFO why questions. You know, people have no trouble dealing with the data that they've never heard about. Only 2% of the people in my audiences have read any of the five large-scale scientific studies. But what they really want to know is, so how come? Why would aliens come here? Why don't they land on a White House lawn? Why doesn't the government tell us what it knows? You know, stuff like that.
0: That's what I said. They don't want to believe. They want to know.
1: That's right, and we provide them with answers that seem to satisfy them. And it—it's there are a lot of myths about uh, the whole co- surrounding the question of UFOs. Uh, one, of course, is that there isn't any evidence. So if you look at the SETI papers, and you know what SETI stands for—a silly effort to investigate. Right. If you, look, if you look at their books, they'll all tell you there's nothing to flying saucers. They'll make a remark in passing. But they never reference these large-scale studies. Now, I read their books. They don't seem to read mine. Or if they do, they don't refer to them.
0: <laughs> what does Seth Shawstack say about all this?
1: Well, he and I have debated on um, George Nury's, uh program, uh, Coast to Coast Radio. Sure. And we appeared with Larry King. Uh, well, it was rerun January 1st. Basically, he says, yes, there's life out there, but ain't nobody coming here. There is no evidence. So you won't find any references to any of the large-scale studies. And he walks a kind of tight line. He can't say there's nobody out there, because then there'd be no point in, in uh, setting. and looking, right. Yeah, and he looks to the Drake equation as the great answer to everything. And it isn't. It's not science. It's not an equation. And, it's estimates. And you can see how estimating it is, dartboard physics, I'd call it, because different people use the equation and come up anywhere from, oh, 10,000 civilizations in the galaxy to 10 million. That's not an equation. That's that's dartboard physics. So Seth, of course, needs to protect his own territory. He can't admit aliens might be coming here. Why would you use uh, radio telescopes? Remember the lack of science. They assume In the first place, there's nobody coming here. They assume that there's no interstellar travel, no colonization, no migration. They assume that aliens sending signals would want to send a signal to us. Why? Why in the world would an advanced civilization? We've only had technology for, what, 120 years? Uh, You know, earthling-type people for 10,000. The planet's 4.5 billion years old. It was perfectly suitable for people to live here a long, long time ago. So uh, considering that there are stars in our own galaxy that are billions of years older than the sun, uh, one would expect that uh, somebody even a little bit more advanced than we are would have technology that we couldn't possibly duplicate or understand. Just look back 100 years. I mean, I got kind of a shock. I was talking to uh, two classes of students at the University of Detroit a couple of years back and mentioned you know, how much uh, technology has changed in my life you know, before DNA and before space program and all this kind of stuff, lasers, uh, nuclear things. And I said, you know, when I started working in industry, I was using a slide rule. I looked around the class. Any of you know what a slide rule is? Not one! Boy,
0: did that make me feel
1: old. And that was less than 50 years.
0: I remember those.
1: Well, yeah, the instructors did,
0: but none of the students
1: did. So what I'm saying, the notion that Aliens are going to use the same kind of technology we're using when it's quite obvious our technology is changing extraordinarily rapidly, Uh, you know, providing we survive for some time. You wouldn't recognize it. I mean, I look at the computer on my desk and wow, you know, and the Internet. To me, one of the most remarkable things about the Internet, I can put Stanton Friedman in Google with quotes around Stanton Friedman and in less than a second, it tells me it's got 63,218 hits on my name. Now, how does it do that? You know, <laughs> it's it's truly incredible. I used to spend time in libraries and going through abstract journals. Now a few keystrokes, and boy, I can find out more than I want to know about most things.
0: Now, Stan, you talked about uh technology in the last 100 120 years that yep. brings me back to philip j corso rest in peace do you believe what he said that technology was funneled through different corporations who had to admit they discovered the technology but in reality it was alien recovered technology do you believe it
1: no i met uh, the colonel on more than one occasion nice guy but you notice the book doesn't have any references. He took credit for, example, uh, micro-integrated circuits. Remember, he was only working on this supposedly from 1960 to 62 in the Foreign Technology Group under General Trudeau at the Pentagon Army. Now, uh, he wasn't an engineer or scientist. Uh, he didn't get there until 1960. He took credit for a micro-integrated circuit that a guy got a Nobel Prize for working at Texas Instruments in 1957-58. Something's wrong there. Uh, also, perhaps more important, there was the Air Force Foreign Technology Division. I had dealings with them, uh, or much earlier than a long time ago, the early 60s, and I made frequent visits back there. And there were dozens of engineers and scientists there, and we know some of the wreckage went there. Uh, you know, in 47. So the notion that uh, nothing was done until Uncle Phil got his hands on things is wrong. Also, in a sworn statement to Attorney Peter Gersten, he claimed that he had been a member of the National Security Council. Well, I checked with the Eisenhower Library, I've been to 20 archives, and I think it's always a good idea to check on supposed facts. And most of them are very helpful, the archivists and stuff. And uh, it turns out not only was he not a member of the National Security Council, which is at the top of the heap, so to speak, government involvement in important stuff about the national uh, strength and war and all that sort of stuff. Not only was he not a member, but he never attended a meeting. They keep track of these things. And when I sent a copy of their letter to Peter Gerson, he sent it to Corso. And don't you think you want to remove that? Nope. So I don't know what's going on there. I don't know whether he did handle some wreckage possibly There are parts of the story that don't make any sense. For example, he stated that at Fort Riley in Kansas, on July 6th, his bowling buddy uh, asked him if he wanted to look at something It turned out to be an alien body in a kind of fluid. In the first place, that's a gross violation of security. In the second place, I asked him, well, how do you know it was July 6th? Because that doesn't seem to fit with the Roswell story. Well, I know when I was transferred there, which was March or April. So it it doesn't fit. It doesn't make any sense. So he may have imagined it. I don't think he was basically a liar. I think he was an exaggerator. Well, he said that uh, J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI director for umpteen years, was his good buddy. And uh, Hoover, if you get a hold of his FBI file, Corso's, called him a rat. So, no, He called
0: Corso? He called Corso a rat?
1: Yeah, Corso was a troublemaker because he saw communists under every bed and every desk. And, and also, you know, interesting part of his character. He worked for Strom Thurmond, a segregationist at the time when he was running for president back then. Uh, that, that's not a strong recommendation. So, uh, you know, it's an interesting book. It did Sell a lot, and just Thurman withdrew his uh, forward for the book when he found out what it was for. He thought it was for some other kind of book. Um, so Phil was a nice guy. I've met his son, and I've heard him speak. Uh, but uh, I and I've talked to uh, the people at the Army Archives and stuff. I got a lot of information on him. So uh, sorry, wrong number.
0: What I find interesting is that it's not as if he was in his 40s, 50s or 60s. It was later in his life. Oh yeah. A few years before he passed away when he actually co-wrote this book with Bill Burns.
1: Well, it wasn't many years before he passed away. Uh he died within 3-4 three, three, years of when the uh the book was written and Bill Burns did probably most of the work, and he told me that he thought the public didn't know enough about Roswell, so we had to add some things there, too. So, you know, it's kind of a mystery. Uh, Why did he stretch the truth? I don't know. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm just a dumb old physicist. We don't worry about the lies. You know, we worry
0: about what's going on, what are the facts? Like Carl said, we want to know. It's not a question. Exactly, Stan. We have to take a break, and we'll be right back. I have another interesting Roswell question. Don't go anywhere. We're here with Stanton Friedman. We're back. This is Mel Fabregas, the very test show. We're here with the father of modern day ufology, Stanton Friedman, and we're talking about Roswell. As far as your link to Roswell, we're losing a lot of the witnesses to time and age, aside from Jesse Marcel Jr. Are there any witnesses you are aware of who have yet to come forward or who, have, who might have made video quote unquote deathbed confessions waiting in the wings?
1: I wish I knew. There was one guy who was at Roswell last year. Uh, I was there, of course, for the celebration, and I'll be there this year, um, July 1 to, four, two to 5. Uh, but there was a, a guy who was in his early 80s, Earl, I'll think of his last name, doesn't matter. Uh, he had been asked to talk about, we found out, the, one of the researchers found out that he was at Roswell. We have a base yearbook. And they managed to find him, but he wasn't going to say anything. And his daughter worked on him, and finally, last year, just a couple of months before the uh, festival, he decided he wanted to talk. So he was brought out, and I was on a platform with him, very convincing about how he and a couple of his other guys were called in to uh, go out to the crash site and pick up uh, pieces of this foil-like material. And he said what was really strange is you'd pick it up, very lightweight, nothing to it. He had a gunny sack on his back, you know what we call it, um, uh, this brown burlap uh, sack. You don't see them much anymore. but uh, And he'd bend down, pick something up, put it in the sack, and before it would get to the bottom of the sack, it would unfold. He'd crumble it, but it unfolded. Anyway, he was a very convincing witness. He died uh, two or three months after the festival. He hadn't been well. That's one of the reasons he decided to come forward. So I'm sure there are people out there who know something, how we can get them to come out. I mean, they can go to my website, my number's on there. Uh, you know, I, And I don't use witness names without permission. Uh, Fulford, Earl Fulford. But uh, I'm sure there are other people out there uh, just as, look, over the years, I've heard seven different stories of more planes going up after a UFO to chase it. Remember, at one time, the interceptor pilots were told to shoot them down if they don't land when instructed to do so. That was in 1952. Well, apparently, some got a little zealous, and seven never went back that I know about. And if I know about seven, there are probably a lot more. sure like to hear from the guys who were on the ground on those occasions. Uh and so, look, I worked under security. One of the many myths is that governments can't keep secrets. How truly absurd. This is one of the things that the SETI people say. You know, I point out in, in my book, there's a whole chapter about the cosmic Watergate, and I give several examples of massive programs that involve thousands of people, which we didn't find out about for a very long time. I mean... 12,000 people were at Bletchley Park in England. Uh, we'd broken the German codes. This is during World War II. Uh, we'd broken the German codes, so they intercepted, decoded, translated, and released very carefully to people with a strong need to know German military communications. Now they had to be careful because we couldn't let it on, let on that we had broken the code or it would be changed and we'd be tough out of luck. 12,000 people... <clears throat> They 'd think, "Okay, come to the end of the war." Uh, the story would be all over the place there wasn 't one word in public for twenty five years after the war. There was a good reason incidentally, some other countries were using the German codes, and we didn 't want them to know we were reading their mail and There are many other programs you're saying uh, corona
0: you're saying that uh, some pilots were ordered to shoot down the bogies." Uh, Milton Torres, you probably heard his story by now, right? He's probably listening to this show right now. We had him on the show about a month ago. He's probably smiling. He's probably (laughs) smiling right now, saying, Thank God when I pulled the trigger, nothing happened. Because probably he wouldn't be here if he had fired.
1: Well, I found somebody else, a Navy pilot, who had been scrambled from a base in South Carolina, Bogey. And directed toward it, and he gets up top uh, 20,000 feet and looks around. Here it is down below him, and it comes right up to uh, at him, in front of him, heads toward him, bright light. He held his hand up, to cut down the brightness, and he could see his bones in his hands. So what does he do? He pulls the trigger. What happened? Nothing, because his guns weren't loaded. Right. <laughs> And, but he was interrogated for a few hours after he landed because all this is going on in real time he's telling a guy on the ground you know you're supposed to uh, you're on an intercept mission and what what's going on and where's it going and what's happening and what do you guys see on radar and all the rest of that and he was interrogated by both uh, military officers and some guys in suits and he became a lawyer incidentally uh, flew his own plane for many years and uh, he's He's older than I am now anyway, <laughs> and uh, we agree that uh, probably the only reason he's alive is that his guns weren't lost. It's,
0: it's a common denominator. They land, they're told to shut up, and the next morning they get a visit from somebody with a trench coat, and they're told not to talk.
1: Well, yeah, and guys who sign security oaths are in the military, uh, loose lips sink ships. That was, uh, you know, I get people saying, well, they would have told their wives... You don't tell your wife classified information. it's ridiculous. A good example of that, incidentally, is General um, Leslie Groves was the guy in charge of the Manhattan Project to develop nuclear weapons. On August the 5th, 1945, his wife gets a call from somebody in uh, Groves' office at the Pentagon telling her that he thinks she would be interested in what's going to be on the news uh, that day, well, the next morning, actually. Okay, and she, he calls her early in the morning. It's going to be on at noon. She listens, and they tell about this new incredible atomic bomb that had been dropped on Japan. This is Hiroshima.
0: Sure.
1: And the war would be over soon. And she thought at that point that the reason he had called her was that their son was due to be sent to the Pacific Theater to work on the invasion of Japan. And it wasn't anybody looking forward to that. They expected a million casualties. At uh, the end of the program, though, there was a shocker. The program to develop this incredible new atomic bomb, which will certainly end the war, was done under the direction of General Leslie Groves. That's when she found out what he'd been doing for the previous three years.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: So you don't tell your wives. That, that program involves 60,000 people. Uh so, yes, yeah, secrets can be kept. And people say, why would they want to keep anything secret about flying saucers? Well, think about that for a minute. We want better weapons delivery and defense systems. We spend lots and lots of money on them. The uh, stealth fighter, for example, we spent $10 billion over a 10-year period to develop that. Uh, clearly, we think it's valuable to develop new technology in secret. Uh Of course you'd want to keep secret what you learned. And also, let's face it, we don't want our enemies, who might capture a crash saucer after all, to know that we know, that they know, that we know. You know, this weapon, -weapon, counter-weapon, counter-counter-weapon game has been played for a long time. Uh, Stronger spears, bigger shields, you know. Seems to be man's uh, destiny to come up with weapons and counter-weapons. But... There are other things too, of course. Uh even if we haven't learned how to duplicate flying saucers, we may have learned a lot of little bits and pieces that make for better technology. I talk about this in uh, flying saucers and science that uh you know, knowing the composition of something might lead you to new materials and I uh, I looked there's a picture in the book of me with my hand on the Apollo 12 command module. You know, it's a round, blunt body. It doesn't look anything like a high-speed, high-performance vehicle. I always thought they'd look like the X-15. You know, pointy-nose, sharp wings, all that sort of thing. It's a round, blunt body. Maybe the notion that we ought to look in that direction came from knowing, son of a gun, these saucers are round, blunt bodies. And we know that there were wind tunnel tests done in late
0: 1947
1: of disc shapes... Somebody must have found they worked.
0: (laughs) That's a good point I haven't heard before. Stan, we always talk about Roswell as the case that started it all. But why can you tell us about... But it didn't. Exactly. And that's the next part of my question. What can you tell us about the Aurora, Texas UFO crash of 1897, the UFO that crashed on a windmill and was witnessed by many, and allegedly even an alien recovered, in your opinion? Was that a real Uh, case or just an urban legend?
1: I think it's a combination of the two. I think something happened. Remember, there was a whole wave of sightings of strange uh, craft, if you will, in 1897. Whether they were Americans who had figured out how saw, how to fly before the Wright brothers' first flight in 1903, who knows? Uh, and maybe they ran into disaster. So it's in my gray basket. Uh, I've talked to uh, what was his name, a reporter for the Dallas paper, a man named Case, I think years ago, and he found some people who were still alive, this is more than 20 years ago, uh, who had vague recollections of having heard the story many, many years before. I don't know. Uh, And the cemetery people refused to let the cemetery be excavated, you know, and I I understand it was covered on one of the UFO Hunters show, but we don't get that up in Canada here, so sorry about that. I, I didn't see it. So maybe... Uh, I'll leave room, but I don't have enough data.
0: It seems that UFOs like to crash on windmills. Recently, one allegedly crashed into a wind turbine on the the 8th of January in the UK. What have you heard about that?
1: Well, I saw the pictures of the, the, well, first the absence of a blade, 65. Right, exactly. And the other one was, you know, like a big giant had twisted it, which is quite remarkable and there were supposedly a bunch of sightings of lights in the area at that time. And there again, supposedly now, latest thing I read was they had recovered the blade.
0: Oh, I haven't heard that.
1: And so they were going to do analysis to see if there's any residue on it from something, you know, like an automobile crash, maybe paint from the red car wound up on the yellow car, you know, Uh, and I haven't heard the rest of the story. So, uh, you know, it, Conventional explanations don't seem to work. Uh, How do you bend a blade like that? I mean, this thing is huge. Uh, So whether a saucer didn't know where it was going or didn't pay attention or there are no lights on it, I, I don't
0: know. Interesting. It's funny that until a couple of days ago, they hadn't found the blade. I just heard that you said they found it. But they kept that bent blade up there. I would have removed it and analyzed it.
1: Well, one would hope that they are getting that done. Uh, Remember, their interest is in producing power, not in finding out what caused it to happen. Uh, Right. They'd like to know that because if it's something that's at fault, uh, you know, they don't want it to happen again. Those things are expensive. But uh, And certainly, (laughs) there have been all kinds of rumors and stories, and uh, rarely have I heard a good piece of scientific data about that, except for seeing the picture.
0: This question is from a listener. You worked on nuclear engine technology. What actual test platforms were used?
1: Well, it depends which program. In the Aircraft Nuclear Propulsion Program, we ground tested uh, a big old sort of simulated aircraft nuclear reactor program. We had designed a system for flight in a big Navy plane on... We never operated one in the air. There was a small reactor taken aloft in a monstrous B-36 to produce neutrons and gamma rays, which were measured by instruments in the crew compartment and aircraft going by. Radiation shielding was my bag, so I was aware of those experiments. Now, the nuclear ramjet program, Pluto it was called, it ground tests on that, too, but it never flew aloft. It was to be launched from an airplane and would carry nuclear weapons any place in the world. Uh, the nuclear rocket program, there were several different ones. I worked for Westinghouse on that. Aerojet General was involved and in Los Alamos National Laboratory. And there we tested a number of nuclear rocket engines. The NRXA-6 was only... 1,100 megawatts, that's half the power of Grand Coulee Dam, was six feet in diameter. Uh, Los Alamos tested a slightly larger one, seven feet in diameter. The Phoebus-2B nuclear rocket reactor propulsion system, part of the NERVA program, uh, there had been the Kiwi program before that. But the Phoebus was uh, operated at a power level of 4,400 megawatts, twice the power of Grand Coulee Dam, seven feet in diameter. And remember, these would be used only as upper stages. Uh, if you want to go to Mars, it'll double the payload you can send there, stuff like that, uh, maybe set up a lunar base.
0: That's That's uh, the other part of the question. Were they only ground test, And if flown, did they reach suborbital or orbital no, flight use? No, well,
1: they weren't flown. Uh, now, there also there's another whole part of this story, though. We also worked on uh, small compact reactors that would produce electricity uh, for use in orbit or in space. The Russians uh, actually launched a total of about 35 of them. The United States only one, and we actually wound up buying one of theirs. One came down in the Cosmos 954 uh, Soviet satellite, and I had predicted that my work with uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base Foreign Technology Division was to look at Soviet nuclear technology and see whether they would be able to put one in space. And I said, yes, they're doing all the right research. So I must have been the only guy who was happy to hear about that coming down out in the boonies <laughs> in North Canada. <laughs> and uh, uh, that's a way to produce electricity is useful for, oh, laser beam weapons, for fancy radar. Uh, but there's one more step. I mean, if you got power, you can think of a lot of things to do with it. But... Uh, there's another step. I worked on nuclear fusion. Now, that was pretty much a paper study, but we've got samples of that. I mean, the sun is a fusion factory. All the stars produce their energy by nuclear fusion. if you use the right stuff in the right way, and kick particles out the back end that have, oh, 10 million times as much energy per particle as they can get in a dumb old chemical rocket. I mean, fusion is definitely the way to go. And, of course, we did what you'd expect Earthlings to, did, to do. We figured out in 1938 that that's how the sun works. It's not a mass of burning gas. Uh, so we quickly proceeded to use it. In 1952, we exploded our first H-bomb, which is a fusion system. And it had the energy equivalent, this is out in the Pacific, uh, called Mike. That was that first shot. Uh, it had the equivalent energy of exploding 10 million tons of TNT. Now, uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they were less than 20,000 tons. This was 10 million tons, and the fireball was three miles wide.
0: That it's difficult the- to grasp. Well, it is,
1: frankly. And you wonder, what did the aliens think about that? I mean... Holy cow, these are these guys are idiots down here. You know, uh, one of the remarkable things in the last 60 years or so is that we haven't used more nuclear weapons against people. Uh, with all the ones we have and with how powerful they are, of course, that was 10 million tons the Russians outdid as they exploded one. That was 50 million tons of
0: TNT energy equivalent.
1: It's a very sad thought. I mean, I'm a nuclear guy, but it scares the heck out of me. <laughs> T-
0: talking about nuclear stuff, we've sent up some nuclear-powered and ion-powered satellites and probes. Did you work on them?
1: Well, I worked on uh, the the uh, Pioneer 10 and 11 spacecraft. They have radioisotope thermoelectric generators. Uh, plutonium-238 decays. It produces an alpha particle, which gets absorbed... And you can produce electricity if you have a high temperature and a low temperature. And all our deep space probes used nuclear uh, devices. Uh, uh, the first thing on Mars, we used one. Uh, the um, what's the name of it? It's out in Saturn. The Cassini spacecraft uses uh, radioisotope thermoelectric generators. Their advantages: they'll last for many, many, many years. There are no moving parts. And you don't need to worry. If you use the solar panel, the further you get from the sun, the energy goes down as the square of the distance. So it's kind of nice to have something that produces the energy. And Pioneer spacecraft, well, it's out there. It's sending out signals. They're not very strong, of course. But uh, uh, they're, it's still going. And that was launched in the early 70s when I worked on them.
0: Before I ask you the next question, let me preface by mentioning the Cash Landrum 1980 UFO incident, which I'm sure you're very familiar with, which is one of a few incidents where the human UFO UFO observers were seriously hurt by radiation emission from the sighted UFOs. To ufologists, this case is perhaps the most baffling and frustrating of modern times. And by the way, coincidentally, it occurred just a day after the Randall-Sham Forest incident in the UK. It's one of the very few cases to result in criminal court proceedings. What about the risk of sending nuclear probes to a possible inhabited planet, even to microbial life. Is that ethical? Well,
1: you know, you can die from uh, inhaling gasoline. Is that ethical? Uh, The nuclear devices, the the way, the radioisotopes at least, the way they produce energy is with alpha particles. They don't go far. They don't kill you from uh, 20 feet away. Not at all. You wouldn't feel anything from them. So, uh, yeah, I think it's ethical now. If if you use the information to call in the reserves and destroy the place you're at, that's another story. It's our behavior that isn't ethical, not the use of uh, these devices. Uh, yeah, I know people protested when the Cassini came. We sent it around Venus to come back past Earth and then past Jupiter, getting free kicks, cosmic, uh, um, I have a name for Cosmic freeloading <laughs> sounds like a strange term, but that's what it is. Taking advantage of Mother Nature, and men have been taking advantage of Mother Nature for a very long time. but
0: hitchhiking.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, that's basically what it. Well, people protested. Oh, plutonium, plutonium. Well, it's Pu two thirty eight, which you can't make a weapon out of. And yeah, would you want to breathe a room full of this stuff? No, of course not. But. You know, our society is full of stuff that's dangerous, potentially.
0: Uh,
1: you know, I, I think it's by far the lesser of the evil of not finding out about what's going on.
0: We're going to get into the deep portion of the interview when we get back from our break. We're here with Stanton Friedman. Don't go anywhere. Now we're back. mal Fabregas, The very test Show. We're here with Staten Friedman. And now we're going to proceed with the deep part of our interview. Let's start with reverse engineering. Do you believe we have reverse engineered any technology from either UFO crashes, ancient discoveries, or Nazi tests, which would explain some UFOs witnessed?
1: Well, I think we have tried our darnest to find out a lot. And as I said earlier, I think we may have developed bits and pieces of technology. For example, I used to do a weekly science commentary for CBC Radio here in Fredericton. And one time uh, I was reading an article about uh, a new and better permanent magnet material, uh, neodymium iron boron. I'll take my word for it. You can look it up. Uh, anyway, at the end of the article, they mentioned that the original work, on um, the really good one before that, Sumerium Cobalt was done at Wright Air Development Center at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And I just laughed my head off because certainly the, the smart people in 47 would have taken pieces of wreckage and sent them to the best labs that had security clearances. They wouldn't tell them where this stuff came from. Maybe they think it's Russian, German, whatever. What is this stuff? And somebody would say, oh, that's a combination of samarium and Cobalt. Why would you put those together? Are you sure that's what it is? Yes. Well, well, let me get somebody else to find out what's good about it. You send it off to other places, and they measure their properties, electrical, mechanical, magnetic, thermal, whatever. And uh, what do you know? It makes a wonderful permanent magnet. And from there to ghetto blasters. (laughs) That's what happened. And I'll bet the original idea for that came from wreckage from Roswell. So, when you're trying to accomplish something new technologically, knowing that what you're trying for can be accomplished is a big step up. The Russians, for example, after World War II, knew you could build an atomic bomb. We had exploded five of them by the end of 46. Uh, Hitler, on the other hand, during the war, earlier than that, didn't know you could build an atomic bomb. So he spent most of his research and development money on rockets. He knew you could build those. And so, I think we've learned a lot uh, I think I don't think we've duplicated all the technology yet I mean give Christopher Columbus a nuclear submarine and say hey Chris I got an unlimited budget for you I need two more of these could he have made them of course not we couldn't analyze the chips if you found even a, a cheap uh, digital wristwatch seventy years ago you know you'd know it's a watch tells time and it's got a battery but what is this thing? You couldn't measure the stuff that was in the chip. And even if you could, you couldn't duplicate it. Course,
0: I always use the analogy of dropping a computer on top of the Brazilian rainforest. Even with instructions and having the natives retrieve it, they wouldn't know what to do with it.
1: Not the slightest idea. And they, could they
0: have built another
1: one? <laughs> not the slightest chance. Right. So I'm not saying we're not trying to and that we haven't succeeded to some extent to pick up on lots of things. But you can understand why if we had, we're not telling anybody about it.
0: Well, that's based on only retrieving the material, not thinking that we may have had some, quote-unquote, help.
1: Well, okay, that's a different sort of question. Uh, Yeah, I think bodies have been recovered and I think some of them might have been alive. Whether they would want to help us or not, I don't know. Who knows what the quid pro quo is? Maybe that's why the government doesn't want to Tell us anything because they've made agreements without telling us. You know, foreign policy treaties are supposed to be approved by the Senate. I haven't heard of one with aliens that's been approved by the Senate. Is anybody else? You know, so we don't know what's going on. There's a cosmic water gate, it's easy to prove. I show blacked out CIA documents, UFO documents, whited out NSA documents, 160 pages where you can read one or two sentences per page top-secret code word. What's in them? Well, I don't know.
0: <laughs> On your world travels, and you've been practically where no other UFO researcher has gone before, have you heard any evidence of or hard evidence of UFO encountering foreign military or space planes or missiles? Hard evidence meaning released radar images, gun camera footage, crash debris, or radio signals that you have actually personally seen that has not been disclosed?
1: Not that I have seen that hasn't been disclosed. That's for sure. I don't have a security clearance or a need to know now. I didn't. When I had a clearance, I certainly didn't have a need to know for UFO information. And people are very careful. Of, I mean, think of Daniel Ellsberg. He released classified documents and was being persecuted, prosecuted, well, both <laughs> for both. it. Both, uh, yeah. But Nixon's uh, idiots went to a psychiatrist, and that took it out of the uh, out of the game. <laughs> But what I'm saying is millions of people have had clearances. Are people likely to release classified information? No. No, no, no. The penalties are very severe. So even though much as I'd like to know more about what's going on, I am very careful not to solicit classified information from people who have it if I don't have a need to know for it, which is anything that's classified for the last umpteen years.
0: This is a question that just came to my mind now. You probably heard the name Phil Schneider, who probably yes. released information to the public when he shouldn't have. Do you believe that he committed suicide when he was found on the floor with a hose strapped around his neck?
1: I, he's in my gray basket, too. What I've read doesn't give me a lot of confidence that he was telling the truth about himself or his activities, but I can't disprove it, so I'll have to leave it out there. Uh, so the battle of stories.
0: <laughs> The battle of Dulce, New Mexico was probably not true in your opinion?
1: That's a good way to put it. it. Was probably not true.
0: And for the listeners who may not know about the Dulce battle, this was a battle in which 66 American and NATO Delta Force soldiers were killed. This battle allegedly occurred in 1979 between gray aliens and US military and NATO forces at an underground base at Dulce, New Mexico.
1: Yeah, well, I, I know what you mean, and uh, I've talked to people who've tried to investigate that around see There are some underground bases there. Uh, people forget that there are good reasons for having underground bases to hide from the spies in the sky the satellites, and to be uh, underground when a nuclear weapon goes off. Much safer than if you're on the surface, I'll guarantee it. Sure. So don't be surprised that we have, you know, underground bases.
0: Are there How aliens the- in them? I don't know. <laughs> How about the loss of planes, such as in Kentucky uh, after World War II when a plane was lost chasing a bogey, yeah. and the Iranian F-4s? But what have you heard of U-2 or Blackbird sightings or encounters or any use of stealth fighters to sneak up on a UFO?
1: Uh, nothing much. I'll tell you this, though. If you look at the book Shoot Them Down by Frank Fashino Jr., it came out in 2007. I wrote the foreword in the epilogue. It's about the events of 1952, including the Flatwoods Monster case. But Frank documents more than 200 plane crashes, military plane crashes, in the United States over a five-year period. And even the New York Times used words like disintegrated and disappeared. And five of the pilots had over 100 missions in Korea, where they were being chased by MiGs, you understand, came back to the United States and crashed. Uh, that seems a little strange, to say the least. So who knows what's going on, whether this was part of that. We were trying to shoot them down. Incidentally, the story that we were, the pilots were told to shoot them down appeared in a lot of papers, including the Louisville Courier-Journal, for example, but it did not appear in either the Washington Post or the New York Times for some strange reason. Uh, and we have a general saying we scrambled jets hundreds of times after them. Not a threat to the security of the United States, but it was just routine policy. We scrambled jets
0: after him. Well, that sounds like like an oxymoron to scramble jets when there's no national security threat. That's right. I agree with you. (laughs) So who knows? Now let's look up story. Let's look up to the sky now. What do you know about the Navy Project Clementine and its moon mapping missions? 1.8 million images taken. And what might have been seen and why all the tapes have not been released? I call that deja vu all over again. Is there a scientific reason to classify moon images?
1: Well, it depends. Uh, There may well be, at one time, people were talking about using the moon as a reflector for radar from use down here. Uh, One good reason, of course, was if we found some things that indicated there had been a civilization there besides us at one time or another. That's another one of those gray areas. There's no question that the Clementine took tons of pictures. Some of them are available uh, from NASA, but not all of them, and I better let people know that just because NASA is supposedly a civilian outfit doesn't mean it doesn't do classified work. Some of the programs I worked on were sponsored by NASA, of all people. So, uh, don't know there are many aspects of the Cosmic Watergate. Uh, look at the statement from General Air Force General Carol Bolander. This resulted in the closure of Project Blue Book in 19 end of '68, early '69, and. He was asked to review Blue Book. He had nothing to do with it previously. He worked on the lunar excursion module. And he, in his statement, which resulted in the closure now, said, Reports of UFOs which could affect national security are made in accordance with Joint Army-Navy Air Force Publication 146 or Air Force Manual 55-11 and are not part of the Blue Book system. That would come as a shock to everybody. Two paragraphs later, if we close Project Blue Book, you won't have a place for the public to report UFO sightings. However, as previously noted, reports which could affect national security would continue to be investigated using the procedures established for that purpose. Now, I located him. Uh, He was still alive then. He's not now. And There's no question he knew what he was talking about. I mean, suppose a saucer goes down the runway at a base, Strategic Air Command base. That's a national security problem. If you and I see one out over my driveway, oh, well, just another UFO sighting. So, you know, the real story hasn't been told. The best equipment for monitoring the skies produces classified results. This is radar and sky spies in the sky and all the rest of that. That data is born classified. Well, they don't call it UFO data now. It's uncorrelated targets. Love the phrase.
0: (laughs) Interesting. I had uh, Stephen Bassett a few weeks ago, and we talked about NASA, and we talked about, well, actually, he said this, that even in the charters, 1958, I believe, when NASA was created, right? Yeah. They cannot talk about any findings, life or, say, architecture, geometry, et cetera, that has to be under the National uh, uh, the Department of Defense jurisdiction. Do you agree with that?
1: Well, yeah, NASA came out of NACA, National Advisory Committee on Aeronautics, and when the Russians put up Sputnik, uh, all hell broke loose in Washington. Uh, there were a lot of people that were very concerned about that and surprised, even though we could have put one up two years earlier, but we didn't. Uh, and so NACA, which had a lot of wind tunnels around and so forth, was converted over to NASA. And certainly plenty of security, uh, parts of the nuclear rocket program, they NASA directed, and uh, was, the data was classified. What can I say? That's the way it was. So, uh, yeah, and there was a law, and you got to be a little careful, there was a law about Uh, segregating people who'd been exposed to alien life. What that meant was astronauts who came back from the moon. You know, they were kept uh, on a ship.
0: Quarantined.
1: Yeah, quarantined. That's it. Uh, Not nastily, of course, but still. And that was to make sure that uh, they didn't bring back some crazy alien uh, bug, if you will, Uh, you know, that could ravage the world. Doesn't that sound like a science fiction plot? I think
0: <laughs> it does. And how about that law? I'm just—I remember the, the actual name of the law, but it's the—I believe it's the extraterrestrial contact law. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. That it—it's yeah. illegal. I don't think it's no longer—it's—it's it's no longer a law. But that's I right. found it strange if you come in contact with one, it's illegal.
1: Well, that's right. And they never said anything about aliens, beings, in other words. So, who knows what all they had in mind? Uh, I've never heard of an abductee, for example, being quarantined after returning with the story. I mean, if you want to look at the Betty and Barney Hill case, they were certainly right. in close contact, as reported in my book, captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO experience. Uh, you know, if you're going to pass on bugs, so to speak, <laughs> uh, that would have been a good case for it. Um, so who knows? Uh, but remember, the government's caught in a Catch-22 situation you prosecute anybody for that, then you're admitting that there are alien creatures, aren't you? B-
0: Betty and Barney Hill's story was fascinating. Uh, how about the Jim Sparks story? Have you heard of Jim Sparks?
1: I've heard of Sparks. He's the guy with the tall ones? No. No, that's not.
0: He's the one who wrote the book The Keepers about his multiple abductions. The interesting part of his story is that he had full and detailed recollection of what he went through, which is not traditional with other abductees who have to go through regression hypnotherapy in order to remember.
1: Well, they remembered some of it. And then the, the external part, And then it, it took hypnosis by an outstanding psychiatrist, Dr. Benjamin Simon, uh, who actually directed a hospital in which there were 3,000 beds for Shell shock war veterans. Today we'd say post traumatic stress. uh, What what do you call it? Syndrome? No. The
0: syndrome, right. Um,
1: And uh, disorder, maybe. Um, And uh, so he was very good at getting people to relive an experience, induce amnesia after each session, get them to integrate it back into their life. And uh, we point out in the book that he said in writing that the emotional intensity in Betty and Barney. They were in separate sessions now. was as great as that of any of the shell shock war veterans he'd worked with. And he had to stop one session for each of them because he thought they couldn't handle the terror was so great. So, uh, you know, you had a top-notch guy who didn't know a darn thing about flying saucers, didn't care about them, and tried to lead them away from an alien explanation, and Barney wouldn't go there. Uh, It's funny how people say, oh, he was just picking up on Betty's dreams that she had. Well, Kathleen Martin, who's Betty's niece and the co-author on the book and did most of the work, uh, she did a comparative analysis What, how Betty and Barney described separately their experiences when they were together it comes out the same. Their experiences when they were apart were quite different. Barney was not following Betty's lead. So uh, people talk about hypnotists misleading uh, so-called abductees. Well, in this case, they were. Tr- he was trying to work it the other way, <laughs> convince them they weren't abducted. He didn't succeed. So, uh, you know, uh, that. and that, that story, of course, provides the star map work that gives us a m- much better handle on where these guys might originate. And also... Zeta, reti- zeta reticuli, reticuli, right? right. Yeah, Zeta-1 and Zeta-2 Reticuli. And sure. the thing is, you need the different sense of perspective. Here we are on a planet around a star for which the next star over is 4.3 light-years away. A long ways. Okay. Uh, Zeta-1 and Zeta-2 reticuli from each other. They're both sun-like stars. That's only true of 5% of the stars in the neighborhood. But they're only an eighth of a light-year apart. They're 35 times closer to each other than the sun is to the next star over, You can directly observe from a planet around one, uh, planets around the other, and those two stars just happen to be about a cool billion years older than the sun. So they've had plenty of time to develop different technology, and they're only 39.3 light years away, just down the street. I get a kick out of people who say, well, they can't get here from here. Look how much energy it would take to get to the next galaxy. Who cares? Andromeda is two million light years away. Thirty-nine is a little closer, you know, a lot closer. And that extra million years, you know.
0: I always talk that we have to remove the conventional wisdom blinders and the science that we know. There's there are things that we don't know. We have to accept that fact.
1: Us Earthlings, we're not at the top of the heap. I'm astonished. Right, that you would suggest that. Yeah, um, Friedman's law, I make them up as I go along, is that technological progress comes from doing things differently in an unpredictable way. The future is not an extrapolation of the past. You have to change how you do things. In other words, a laser isn't just a better light bulb. The nuclear rockets I worked on aren't just better chemical rockets. Entirely new physics, different physics. And not predicted, really, much in advance anyway. So, yeah... Uh, it's a very different situation. Oh, you can't see them from the uh, northern hemisphere. you got to go below the equator to see Zeta 1 and Zeta 2 in Wouldn't it be great if I had a lecture I could lead the public concert? There, there they are, right up there.
0: <laughs> but I can't. Stan, I call this one One Major Blunder for Mankind. <laughs> what do you think of the supposed loss of the Apollo tapes? Well, who knows what to
1: think? Uh, you know, we got so many people, so busy. I thought they had found some of them, but uh, who knows? And, you know, it's just like uh, people will come across records from 30, 40 years ago. I've got a bunch upstairs, and they won't even know how to play them. You know, what are these dumb things?
0: <laughs> I know, Stan, but th- this is probably the most critical moment in, in humankind hundreds of boxes having evidence of the one incident that we can all join together and, and, and celebrate being human beings. And it's all lost.
1: Hey, look, I don't like it. Uh, I'm not too surprised. Uh, People forget how big, I mean, the academics in particular don't seem to understand how big some of these programs are. I mentioned uh, 3,500 people working full time on aircraft, nuclear propulsion systems. We're, not That wasn't 58. We're not talking uh, six professors and 30 grad students, you know. So we're talking huge programs with huge budgets with thousands of people and a tremendous amount of, I'll call it, paper and film and Lord knows what else. And so uh, the bigger question, so how come we didn't launch Apollo uh, 18 and 19? The last one was 17. The, the rockets were built. The people were selected and trained. And Nixon said, well, it costs too much money. Well, money had already been spent. You're paying for the Navy, you know, whether they're looking for a nose cone coming down. I mean, the command module coming down or not. Uh, And I don't understand that. Maybe somebody told us, stay the heck off our moon.
0: (laughs) You would think that if NASA, which is known for hiring the cream of the crop, would keep an eye on those. But anyway, I'll have Dr. Edgar Mitchell next week with me here, and I'll ask him that question. And this question, which I'm also going to ask you. Since we're talking about the moon, why do you believe we won't return until 46 years
1: later? I don't know. A failure of leadership is the easiest thing I can say. Incidentally, uh, Edgar Mitchell wrote the foreword for my book, Flying Saucers in Science, Excellent. pleased me greatly. Um, I, I place it on a, a lack of leadership. Uh, the contrast here between the nuclear navy under Admiral Rickover, and a lot of people under him hated his guts, but he got the job done. I worked on a lot of programs that didn't have somebody who had vision and a sense of direction. This is where we're going, guys. You don't want to go there? Get off the train. And NASA, to me, hasn't had a a mission goal, really, since Kennedy said, let's get a man to the moon and back by the end of the decade. You know, that's a real goal because there's subsidiary goals that get achieved along the way. you kind got to have uh, orbital rendezvous and, and a whole bunch of other things. Uh, And you don't need to justify annual budgeting, you know. And so why we haven't had a goal since, I don't know. We talk about sometime, maybe perhaps we ought to think about maybe going back to the moon or to Mars. And I'm wondering whether India or China are going to beat us to both of those places. And Japan. Well, okay. (laughs) Not okay, but it could be.
0: Sure. Let's take another break, and we'll be right back. This is a fascinating conversation that we're having with Stanton Friedman. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. Head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, click on subscribe, and join us in the members area to tune in to the second part of this great show. We'll take a short break, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more.